hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Little Law Podcast. My name's Connor, and I'll be your host for the next 40 minutes or so. We're really excited we've got our own podcast, and I can't wait to share this episode with you. We've got some great stuff on interviews and applications. But first, we just want to say a quick thank you to everyone who listened to our first episode with Linklaters. We're really glad you've enjoyed it and that you found it interesting. For anyone that hasn't listened yet, why not? It's pretty great. But joking aside, we're on Spotify, so if you just search Little Law or the Little Law Podcast, it's the first thing that comes up, so you'll be able to give it a listen. In this episode, we look a little bit more at the other side of the legal coin. With interview season upon us, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Lydia Pierce, a barrister from Broadway House Chambers, and chatting with her about standing out in applications, tips and tricks for interviews, and some more specific advice on pupillage applications. For those of you who may not know what pupillage is, it's essentially the application process that barristers have to follow. So basically, it's UCAS for aspiring barristers. Now we recorded this episode in December of last year at Broadway House Chambers, which, unfortunately, was just before our fancy new podcast mics arrived. In fact, they were literally delivered while I was on the train to Leeds to record the episode. You just can't write this stuff. So that means the quality of the audio for this episode isn't as amazing as our next episodes will be, but the content is just as great. Don't worry. Lydia was a pleasure to talk to and gave so much good advice on getting a job in law and tips and tricks generally. Plus, anyone who tells you to listen to Lizzo before an interview to psych yourself up clearly knows what they're talking about. So I'd just like to say another quick thank you to Lydia for being such a great guest. Also, all of the things that Lydia mentioned, we've put a link to in the description below, so you can click there if you want to find out anything further. We hope you enjoy this episode, and we'd love to hear what you think. You can send us a message either direct on our website, through Facebook, through Instagram, or through LinkedIn. Now, without further ado, I give to you the second episode of the Listen Law Podcast. Enjoy. So I'm joined here with Lydia Pierce from Broadway House Chambers. Thanks so much for putting aside the time to talk to us. Can't wait to, to get into it and chatting about it with you. Thank you very much. So I'd just like to start roughly with a bit about yourself, kind of your background before law, how you got into law and the areas you practice now. So if you could start off by telling us what law is that you practice now? I practice in crime, civil and family law. Right. Do you have a preference as any of those ones? To be honest, I really enjoy the mix. Um, yeah. I do think these days, given the turbulent times we're in having a mixed practice is quite a safe bet as well but if pushed I would say that crime is probably the most fun yeah. any reason for that <laughs> I, I love the clients in crime yeah. <laughs> I think the clients are a lot of fun the solicitors are a lot of fun it's it's kind of at the cold face of advocacy it's, it's very exciting there's I mean there's benefits in all areas of law but for just good fun yeah I think maybe crime's at the top <laughs> So I've got it that you, haven't, you didn't study law at university. Yeah, that's um, right. So what was it you studied and what kind of made you change your path to, to study law in the end? So I went to university first time around as a mature student anyway. Um, and I did a, a degree called IHS at Bradford. This was interdisciplinary human studies. Broadly, it was philosophy. 
I did that just because it was desperately interesting and all I wanted to do at that point was sit around and read books and <laughs> luxuriate in education. I then went back and did the GDL in, I think it was 2011. I decided to switch and go towards the law because I'd done a lot of different jobs in the past. And um, the most recent one prior to switching on to law was working for the police, which was a very interesting job. I was a civilian detention officer and I worked with the people who are now my clients every day in a what I thought of as quite a pastoral role. You look after people when they first get arrested and they're chucked in the back of a van from Leeds Town Centre, city centre. And then they're dropped off at the police station in whatever state they might be in. And it was our job as the detention officers to then look after them, keep them safe, look after their rights until they eventually leave, either to go to court or on bail or released. It was through working with my clients in custody that I realised I wanted to do something say, more interesting, more challenging, but actually meaningful. There were a lot of people that I was meeting who clearly not in the best way, not having the best access to whatever they needed to improve their lives. And it struck me that as a barrister, you have an extremely pivotal opportunity to assist someone at a very vulnerable moment in their lives. So yeah, it was a mixture of things. I mean, that was the more laudable stuff. It was also the fact that it's just interesting. You're self-employed, you're flexible. You get to go all over the place. You get to challenge your brain every day. I personally was sat in underemployment for some level of time after my first degree. And the ability to actually be able to get up and be excited about work and to want to open your laptop when it's seven o'clock in the evening. I think that is a privilege that should not be underestimated. <laughs> I suppose seeing it from the other side before being embarrassed as well, seeing it from when they're arrested and you're the detention officer and things mm -hmm. would help anyway. Yeah. That perspective. I think it helps not only with, I say, being potentially more empathetic towards my clients, but also having quite a realistic view of their circumstances. So there was certainly, I didn't come into criminal law with any rose-tinted spectacles about the kind of work that I'll be doing, about the kind of offences that I'll be dealing with, about the kind of people that I'll be working with. I I came into this fully aware. Yeah, which I think you have to, don't you? Yes. <laughs> the crime especially. <laughs> so talking about kind of applications and things when you were, like I say, applying for pupillage, yeah. um, how do you go about, so there's the thing called the pupillage gateway, mm -hmm. um, which essentially is the one gateway to apply for, for work as a barrister, essentially just for readers that aren't barristers. Yeah. So how did you go about applying for the different chambers? Did you have a set amount you wanted to apply to? Did you go by location? Did you go by practice? How, how did you go about it? Uh, you know, it, it throw as much mud at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think the reality is that, as anyone who is listening who is interested in a career at the bar will know, that the big difficulty is landing pupillage. And so for me, it took me four years, over four years of applying to actually get my pupillage offer. I was certainly, I mean, I took quite a pragmatic view. I got a copy of the Training Contract and Pupillage Handbook, which I think is still something yeah, that's available. Yeah. And in the front of there, you have a big chart that essentially you have the dots against of which areas of law each chamber's practices in. So I went through and I looked at the chambers that I was interested in geographically, and I looked at the work areas I was interested in. I mean, for me, I knew that Chancery was probably unlikely to be where I was going to end up commercial tax law also unlikely to be where I end up. 
but essentially anywhere that was geographically in the right place and then did the right kind of work for me made it onto a first list. Off the back of that then it was looking at well where do I realistically actually want to go well not just where can I get to but things like there are chambers that are on my circuit that whilst in theory I could go to them would I really want to transport myself 60 miles a day to be able to get to work so I cut it down on where I practically wanted to be and then after that it was looking at the chambers that were left and going onto their websites and looking at who the pupils were and who the most recent tenants were and there were some of these chambers I was looking at and everybody on the list had a doctorate and they'd volunteered in the Hague and they'd you know built an orphanage and, and everything else and I just thought I it's not that you should be put off of applying to places, but if you have a limited number, which you do on the gateway of applications you can put forward, when you are looking at slimming places down, you might want to look at what are the people who get into this set like and am I going to fit in there? Because if you're not, and there were chambers I looked at where almost every single person had gone to Ox, Oxford or Cambridge. Yeah. I'd gone to Bradford University. I don't think I was going to particularly <laughs> fit in. And it, it was just a way of cutting down the number of applications. But as I said, don't don't take that as a given that if everybody is different to you, that you shouldn't apply. And how long did you spend roughly kind of looking through like Chambers sites and things and looking at their people's LinkedIn and stuff? How, how should you limit your time when you look at that? Oh, crikey. Um, <laughs> somewhere between stalker and serial. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's difficult. And I think one of the benefits... And I know there aren't many of them. One of the benefits of needing to apply year on year, as a lot of people do, is that your awareness of each chambers that you're applying to will probably grow for each year that you are applying. There are some chambers that I apply to multiple years. So where I put the groundwork in year one of applying, there was then less I needed to research year two. It also helped just being in the local area and meeting people, doing the mini pupillages. So... What I used to do, and I know one of the hints that I give, is I spent, when I very first started applying, every Sunday evening I would set aside half an hour and I would research this chambers for that half hour. And I would look at their websites, their LinkedIn, look at any social media, note down the big cases. Who are the barristers there that I really think that I'm interested in knowing more about? And just create a little, almost like a little file on each one. At that point, also, I had a spare copy of the training contract and pupillage handbook, so I'd rip their page out of it, staple my stuff to the back. And to be honest, when I went down to the pupillage fair in London, I would take this with me, and on the train, I would be reading, oh, well, Garden Court have done this and that in the last month, and then they've done this. So when I was approaching people at the pupillage fairs, I could say, oh, hello, oh, I read that you just got this brilliant case through the Supreme Court, or this or that. And when barristers at these events are meeting hundreds of people a day, that little extra bit of showing that you've done the research might be the difference that makes someone go, oh, you know, actually, pop us an email through. Or you know what, come and shadow me at court next week. It's worth putting the time in. It's difficult to juggle it around studies. And again, this is where the benefit of applying over multiple years comes, because it might be right now, if you're mid-bar course and you've got VDOC and you've got conference and everything else to prepare for, you haven't got the time to read up about 50 different chambers. But if you're unsuccessful this year, next year you will. You kind of mentioned many pupillages. How useful do you think they are when you're applying? Do you think it's kind of a tick box size that you've done a couple, it's OK? Or do you think they're quite pivotal when it comes down to deciding? 
I think I certainly know people where it's been the difference between getting a pupillage and not. When we get the applications in, and I caveat this was saying I am not on the pupillage committee, there are tons of them. And generally, if you're at the point that you're on the bar course, the chances are that you are the kind of person that is able to get a pupillage and successfully complete a pupillage. So at that point, it's going to be about setting yourself apart. And I know it's been down to the wire. I don't think this was at our, our chambers, but I know of other chambers. But it's been down to the wire between two absolutely brilliant candidates and the person who got it was the person who come from any pupillage at that set. So I think, one, you definitely do need them on your CV, even if just a tick boxing exercise to show that you have done some. But also, it'll help you when you apply to that particular set. For me, certainly, there were applications that I put in after having done a mini pupillage at a certain chambers. And it improved my application because I was able to say, actually, I, why do you want to apply to this chambers? It's always a pivotal question. And being able to say, actually, I came to your chambers. I did a mini pupillage in February. I observed X, Y and Z person. And I was really impressed to see the collegiate atmosphere or the way in which clerks and council communicate so well together. It just shows your commitment, I suppose, towards that chambers if you've managed to get a mini pupillage with them and then you can talk about it. And you're just trying to do that thing that puts you that 1% above everyone else and it could be the difference. So you touched on that kind of why us question. Mm -hmm. If you haven't done experience with them or like a mini pupillage, for example, how can you show you want to go to them, particularly when you might be applying to five others and you think, realistically, this might not be my favourite anyway. You've got to yeah. kind of give an answer. How do you go about it? Yeah, and I mean, I caveat this with before I got my pupillage at Broadway House, I hadn't done a mini here. So it's not fatal. <laughs> Answering why us if you've not done a mini pupillage. For me... And I say this, you know, top of any contacts you can. When I was applying to chambers that I hadn't done any pupillage, I was trying to find anyone else that I knew or who could help me, who could tell me something about that chambers. So when I applied to here, to Broadway House, I got in touch with a friend of mine who's a case builder at the police. And at that point, she was specialising in, I think it was Rasso cases, sexual offence cases. And I said to her, have you ever briefed Broadway House? She said, yes. I was like, right, great. Tell me something about them. And she described about coming to Chambers and about how Stephen Wood's really good on cases and how they did this case together and this was the result and various bits and pieces about it. When I came into my interview here, I was able to say, actually, I know I've not been on a mini pupillage. However, I've spoken with this person, named the person, people on the panel knew who she was. And she was able to tell me these things about Broadway House, which really attracted me to applying here. Now, that's the same... If you can't get hold of someone who potentially instructs these chambers, but maybe you've got a friend who went for an interview here and they could tell you something about the interview process that impresses you. Maybe you've got a friend who did a mini pupillage. Maybe you've read something. Maybe you've seen something on social media. Essentially anything to just show that you have taken care and time to find out why you want to fit in at that specific chambers. And it's true that we all know you're going to be applying to tens if not twenties or hundreds of chambers but we want to feel special you know why me <laughs> <laughs> it's, good, no, it's just not just me that feels that way yes. <laughs> so say you've had a successful application you've got through to the interview stages what's the first thought that crossed your mind when you've got an email saying you've got an interview what are your first steps to prepare for the interview the first thought is woohoo <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> <laughs> i think of what i would 
would say, um, and certainly I found this, is don't put all your pressure on yourself on your first interview. Now, there might be some people in the world who go to their first ever interview and they get that pupillage and absolutely lovely, wonderful for them. That certainly wasn't my experience. And I had to get some pretty terrible interviews under my belt before I really kind of felt my way through what I was doing. So when you do get that first interview, I would say certainly go back and reread your application because you're going to be interviewed by barristers. What they will be looking at essentially is your application a bit like they would look at an application to court. And certainly I've seen it when I've sat on the, the interviewing side of things as an interviewee, not an interviewer, that the, your application will be highlighted in the same way that a court application would be. And there will be the points in there that they want to pick apart and the points they want to know more about. So make sure you know your application inside out. If you say that you've done something, well, make sure you have done it. <laughs> also make sure that you're able to answer questions about it. I was certainly told, probably it was one of the first pieces of, pieces of advice I ever got, was about applying for a scholarship at Middle Temple. And someone at Middle Temple sat down with me and just told me about the application process and how it's all going to be. And she said the same thing to me, make sure that what you put on your application is definitely accurate. And that you can explain everything that's there. The example that she gave was there was someone who applied before, at, must have been at some point in history, and they had put down that they were, I think, a referee in football matches, I think women's football. And so the interview panel said, well, I then explain the offside rule. And of course, the person was a referee in women's football and was able to explain very eloquently the offside rule. So if, if they hadn't been... <laughs> They probably wouldn't have got the scholarship. <laughs> so, yeah, know your application, know your chambers. And then after that, it comes down to the practical things. So stuff like there's really good interviewing advice on YouTube. There's a video by Daniel Halleck called How to Rock Your Next Interview. I must have watched it at least five times. He's very likeable, very nice, and he just goes through all of the kind of the usual situations that you'll come across in an interview and how to deal with them. I would say learn the star techniques for answering questions and practice it. Practice giving balanced answers to questions. So when you ask your opinion on something, and this I suppose leads into research, research the big stuff that is going on at the moment and have an opinion on it and make sure you can justify your opinion. So whatever the issue might be, know the arguments for it, know the arguments against it, know where you stand on it and be able to justify why your position is the way that it is. And I mean, certainly make use of your careers department, your in university, your friends. I mean, I was shameless about asking for help off of my course mates on the bar course. Anyone who'd already got pupillage, I was emailing them saying, right, can I have absolutely anything? And you know what? People are really friendly. Every single person I asked for sent me everything they had. They sent me their application forms, they sent me their notes on their interviews, they sent me their feedback. It was invaluable in preparing not only my applications but then actually preparing for the interviews as well. And then on practical advice, I'd say you need to have some recent development knowledge on site, so somewhere like Little Law is really good for this, know what the new cases are, know what the big judgments are, know what the legislation that's being debated right now is, and again, form your own opinion on it. Ethical dilemma, always a classic to come up in interviews. I know I got asked in at least three different interviews, a variation on the question of, um, you have a client and you get whatever result they want. 
in the case, after the case is finished, they then say to you, actually, ha ha, I wasn't telling the truth. What do you do? So have a look at, there's a website, the Common Dilemma Archive, I think by the Bar Council. If you look at BSB ethics problems, I think it's the first thing that comes up. That's got a load of resources on what are the common questions that you should get asked to the actual Bar Council, but they're also the kind of questions you're likely to get asked in an interview. They answer it, but they also refer it even to the core values. So it's a really good way of just being able to tick off your research in that area. Caveat this with, I don't know how old the information is on there, and I can't vouch for how accurate it is, but at least as a starting point on how to even tackle those kind of questions, it's a useful place to go. And then task preparation. Some chambers will send you work in advance to do, and in which case, absolutely great. Make sure you put your best effort on and do everything that's needed of you. A lot of chambers will say there's going to be an advocacy exercise. However, you don't need to prepare for this. I'm pretty sure we did that when I was interviewing here. Now, I would say that's lovely, but do prepare. What I did going into all of my interviews, I had written myself a set of skeleton arguments for all the most common advocacy exercises that could come up, a plea and mitigation, a bail application, a relief from sanctions application. And so I had a notebook that had in it all of the essentially the structure that you would need to make those types of applications or make those kind of arguments. It meant that when I went into my interviews and all of a sudden I got given a set of facts to deal with. So here's Tommy who's done X, Y and Z. You need to try and mitigate his sentence. Instead of me spending 10 minutes panicking about, oh, God, what do I need to think of credit and this and that and blah, blah, I had it all in front of me. And all I had to do then is slot the facts into the law that I already knew. And it just saved me time. And it made me look really, I think, a bit more professional. So you mentioned answering using STAR. For those that are unfamiliar with it, what is STAR and how do you answer a question using it? So the STAR technique for answering questions is situation, task, action, result. If your interviewers have gone on some kind of interview training, they are likely to have been told to look out for this. It's certainly something that Daniel Hallett can tell you a lot about. It's certainly something that your careers department will be able to teach you about as well. But essentially, it's the way, the best way in which to answer those competency questions such as tell us about a time that you've faced adversity. Tell us about a time that you've had to disagree with someone who's in a superior position to you and how you handled that. And you need to answer that using the STAR technique. And if you keep that at the front of your mind, you're likely to kind of hit all of the buzzwords that I suppose interview panels are looking for. So a time that you've faced adversity. So for myself, when I wanted to become a barrister, I had absolutely no money. I've been skimped for a long time. Um, and so I, I did not have 16 grand to spend on the bar course. So I've decided I want to be a barrister. In fact, I didn't have the nine grand I wanted to spend on the GDL. Decide I want to be a barrister. I'll find out how to do that. And I need to get the GDL and I need to do the bar course. And that costs nine grand and then 16 grand, which I don't have. That's my situation. Task. So I need to solve how I'm going to get from the point of being skinned and not having £25,000 to being a barrister. How am I going to do that? I researched ways in which financially supporting myself and I found out about the scholarships at the Inns of Court. I also found out that there's an application process, an interview process that I considered. If I get through that, 
then that's probably a good indication that I'm on the right track. So I can even use it as a bit of a trial run. And if I'm successful, I'll get the money. That means I can then become a barrister in theory down the road. So the action, what did I do? I researched the inns of court. I found out about the scholarships. I went actually to all four inns of court to find out more about them, where I would fit in more. Certainly, I mean, Middle Temple, just as soon as I walked in, that was it. It was clearly where I was meant to be. And I applied for the scholarship. I researched the poor values that they say will make a good barrister. I read some books from my local library about barristers and about life at the bar so I could put forward the best possible application. I then tried to prepare as much as I could without really having any commercial knowledge at that point for the interview. Got myself to London, did my interview. And as the result, the R from the star, I got the scholarship, full nine grand scholarship, which paid for me to be able to do the GDL and so on and so forth. I should get another scholarship for the bar course. And here I am. The result is I am a barrister. <laughs> All very lovely. But you see what we did there. We went through situation, issue. I want to be a barrister. Can't afford how to do it. Task, how I'm going to get to the point of being a barrister. And I need the money. I need to get a scholarship. Action, how did I go about then getting that scholarship? Result, I got the scholarship. Isn't it lovely? Here we are. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're writing your applications, how is it you make yourself stand out? I think it is really worth having something on your application that makes you more interesting. I spoke to Lord Dyson at a mixed mess a good few years ago. I remember him saying to me, everybody's got Duke of Edinburgh and grade eight flute. What is it that makes you different? And the reality is, I think that is the thing that they're looking for. You're coming to chambers, you're going to potentially be working with these people for the next 50 years or so. So we want to know a bit about you. And also, for your sake, you need something that's going to make your application stand out. As I said, everybody is going to have a very impressive CV by the point they're applying for pupillage. So what makes you a bit different? For me, I do stand-up comedy. So that certainly helped me. And it's really easy to make that applicable to the job. My friend David, he brews his own beer. I know one of my bar course tutors told us that she wrote about being a professional cheerleader in her applications. She said it was great. It took up half of the interview time with people just asking about cheerleading. My friend who sent me her application forms, and I actually phoned her to ask if this was true, wrote about going on bad Tinder dates. Now, I can't believe that she did that, but apparently, you know, she got pupillage. In fact, she got multiple offers. And again, it was something that made her stand out. And at the end of the day, when the interview panel has sat back and you've spoken with maybe 20 different students, the chances are they're going to be saying, well, what about that one? Oh, do you remember the cheerleader? Oh, yeah. Do you remember the comic? Yeah. Or do you remember that guy who made his own beer in his cellar? It's that kind of stuff that might just keep you at the forefront of someone's mind. But it's also the kind of thing where you can tailor the interview to yourself. Your average interview is only going to be maybe 20 minutes. So if you've got a really interesting activity that you do, that the panel really wants to know about it, that's five minutes of the interview that you can control. Like I said, the advice that I got at Middle Temple about the person who was able to explain the offside rule, that's great because that five minutes worth of your interview, a quarter of the way through that you are in control of, you can show the panel how you come across, and it's a subject that you can be confident about. So if you've already got that thing in your back pocket, I mean, certainly people have come up to me after talk. Somebody said that they built and raced race cars. I was like, oh, that is the thing. I want to know about that. Forget your ethical dilemma. <laughs> I want to know about boxcar racing. 
if you've already got something in the back of your mind that you do, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons, whether it's building race cars, great, tell us about it. If you haven't because you're far too busy, absolutely fine. But when it comes around to that point that maybe you haven't got pupillage and you've got that spare year in which to improve your applications, find something. There might be something you've always been curious about. Is it feminist knitting? Is it making jam? Is it going on terrible dates on Tinder? <laughs> you know, this, this is your opportunity to have a bit of fun and show the panel who you are. So quite frankly, it's probably the best bit of the application process rather than reading about recent legislation. Great, go and research competitive cake baking. <laughs> then yeah, eat the cake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I mean, it's true. I mean, you're entering chambers. Personally, I politically, I really like the setup of chambers because essentially it's a cooperative. Um, you are going to go into essentially part ownership of a business with these people and you might be there for the rest of your career. So people need to know they're going to get on with you and need to know that you can hold a conversation about something other than the intricate details of the CPR. I'm looking anyway. Has <laughs> <laughs> well, there ever been a question in the interview where you just were stumped and didn't really know what to say and how did you kind of get past that? Was that a final blow for you? Or? Uh, I certainly did have questions that stumped me in an interview. In fact, in that first ever scholarship interview, I was sat in one of the rooms in the library faced by three rather senior barristers in my charity shop suit, not really knowing what I was doing. And at that point, I didn't know any of this stuff about star questions and, and how to really debate things in, in a formalised fashion. And it was the question about kind of recent developments and what was going on at the time. And they asked me initially about the case that was in the news, which I can't think of the name of now. It was about prevention of cross-examination of complainants by perpetrators of some type of abuse or their family members or something similar and I just had not read anything about that I didn't know I was vaguely aware that it was going on but I was completely stumped and I was just absolutely upfront with them I said I'm really sorry I'm aware that that is happening but I couldn't answer a question on it and they were absolutely fine they said okay well do you know about the Ryan Giggs super injunctions well yes I do <laughs> yes I could talk about that and it was fine we just moved on now, I think I caveat that with the point that when I was being interviewed for that scholarship, they knew that I hadn't even done a law degree at that point. So the expectation on me to have a level of commercial awareness was probably a lot lower than it would be on someone applying for pupillage. So try and one, just head that off at the pass by being more aware. But if, if it does come up and it's something you can't answer... You probably need to do a really quick risk assessment and just think, well, can I fluff something together, which probably isn't the best thing to do? Or am I best off just fessing up, saying, I'm sorry, I don't know about that. Is there another area that I can answer a question on? Or what I did research were these, 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 these things. Can I answer anything about that? But you've got to think on your feet. Are you going to be able to muddle your way through an answer or are you best off fessing up? And I suspect a lot of the time you're probably best off fessing up and seeing if you can just get the question changed to something that you are a lot more comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and just as a quick side note, what's the worst interview you ever had? <laughs> <laughs> if you're willing to say. <laughs> oh, there were so many. <laughs> I had some absolutely terrible interviews. Yeah, uh, one of my biggest problems, and it was something that came up regularly for me, a lot of interviewing 
barristers and interview panels will say as a general thing, one of the biggest difficulties is getting people to kind of come out of themselves a bit. That's completely understandable. It's a very pressurised, uh, stressful situation. Uh, my problem was trying to put a lid on it a bit. <laughs> I think I was slightly too relaxed in a lot of my interviews, especially ones where I really haven't thought about whether I wanted to be at that chambers or not. And having travelled 60 odd miles on the train thinking, I don't want to do this <laughs> every day. It's really difficult to hit that sweet spot between holding back enough to be um, adequately professional, but also letting your panel know who you really are. And I think this is where getting a good few bad interviews under your belt helps. I mean, I suppose what I would say to someone moving forward is now I would just think of your minimum of your first three interviews as just write-offs. Just think, you know what, I'm I've got to get these ones out of the way to get to the good ones because it's so stressful. It's so difficult. And I think you can panic and say or just do anything that you later then ruminate about for weeks. Thinking, oh, well, was it because I said this? Was it because I sat down funny? Was it because of this? It's such a stressful situation. You will have terrible ones. I certainly have plenty of terrible ones, but you will get through it. And the chances are, if you keep on reapplying, you will get better and it will work out in the end. So when you've had a terrible interview and you've got back a no, what kind of steps do you take there and what do you do then? Apart from have a little cry, maybe, or just binge watch them for an hour or so. How do you take that rejection and move forward? It, it is tough. Like I said, one, just considering your first three interviews as potential write-offs might be a good way of starting out. You've just got to keep going. I mean, I know plenty of people who have got pupillage, not on their first year, second year, third year or fourth year like me. But for some people, they've got to the point where they are at their fifth year after finishing the bar course before they've got pupillage. So just remember that it does work out for a lot of people, even when it takes some time. I know people with two twos who've got pupillage. I know people who fail multiple exams on the bar course who've got pupillage. I know people who have faced all sorts of different types of adversity and have still got pupillage. So you just need to try and keep yourself positive. It might take a bit of time after those initial rejections. It might take a few months for the sting to go down. But if you gather yourself up and you keep trying, you will be beating all of the people who have given up. So whilst it is scary to think each year that there are still X amount of people applying, there are a lot of people who have well, dropped off, who for whatever reason decide they're not going to pursue it anymore. You will, the more years that you apply, be more experienced than your competitors that's not just the fact that you'll have got some terrible interviews under your belt and you'll have learned from them, but you will have already done that research on the chambers that you're interested in. You might have had more time to be able to do a mini pupillage with them. You're going to be hopefully more confident because you're not going into that interview and it's your first ever interview. It might be your 20th. I mean, Tom Wainwright at Garden Court in London had 46 interviews before getting his pupillage. If it works out for Tom, then <laughs> I think yeah, you've got to, you've got to consider. Well, I need to get to forty-seven before I think about giving up. <laughs> but you also need to remember that okay, so according to the bar course statistic, this was in um, June two thousand seventeen. I've not been able to get up the update once so they've changed the way they do the statistics. But approximately one third of pupils obtain pupillage over eighteen months after finishing the bar course. So if you're not one of the people who sat there on the day of getting called to the bar with a pupillage under your belt, you're in really good company. 
You've also got to remember that just working yourself to the bone and knackering yourself out trying to complete the bar course, plus do the mini pupages, plus do the mooting, plus apply to 50 different chambers, might be too much. And if that is the point where you're at and you're absolutely exhausted, maybe it's time for something to just relax a bit. My view, um, I did the bar course part time and in my final year of the bar course, I didn't make any applications at all. At that point, I was working full time for the police. I was studying part time. I was heavily pregnant and it was like something's got to give. And I just like, and I, it felt like a risk because we all keep on have that ticking clock that you've only got five years after the bar course to get your pupillage. But my view was if I push myself too hard now, I might fail the bar course. And then it doesn't matter how many pupillage offers I've got stacked up behind it. If I fail a bar course, then they're for nothing. So potentially think about giving yourself some time off if you are that exhausted. And I mean, the, the statistics that I took out um, when I do my talks is that junior doctors who work five or more 24 hour shifts in a month increase the likelihood of making a harmful mistake by 700 percent. And that just needs to make you think of two things. One, thank God you're not applying to be a doctor. Also, actually working yourself to exhaustion is going to be counterproductive. The reality is that if you're at the point where you're no longer making sense and you are absolutely fried, maybe it's time to just shut the laptop and give it a rest for the night. Come back to it fresh in the morning. And like I say, that might mean taking that final year where you don't apply or you don't apply to as many. Maybe you just put in five applications to the places that you're really interested in. So say you don't apply for your final year of PPTC or you've applied and not got anywhere. What would you suggest as the best use of your time in the next year or so? Would it be kind of like going abroad and volunteering or doing work in the relevant sector? What, what would you say is some of the best ways of, of coping with it? I think there's a, there's a range of things that you can do. So certainly you want to show that you've not stagnated. So don't just spend that year after the bar course crying, eating ice cream, watching daytime telly. Potentially, so I suppose there's general things you can do and specific things. If you are extremely interested and you only ever want to apply to places that have got a very political background, the, the, like the left wing chambers, the kind of the garden courts and the matrixes, have a look at what their pupils and tenants have done prior to coming to those chambers and look at that as an example of a good way to spend your time post bar course. I mean, and that's the same that goes for, I suppose, anywhere. I mean, that, those were the kind of chambers that I was interested in at one point. So I was looking at what those pupils and tenants had been doing. If you're not looking for a very specific type of chambers that would lend itself to a very specific type of work experience, generalised things that are really good are getting any kind of work experience within the legal sector. So that might be paralegaling. Things like LPC law, that's county court advocacy, is a really, really good way of getting work experience. And I certainly know that there's plenty of people in my chambers who did that. So as um, an LPC law advocate, you conduct hearings in chambers in the county court, generally things like maybe parking fine cases, mortgage repossessions. But you're self-employed, you run your own caseload. It's probably as close to being an actual barrister without being a barrister as you can get. So it's a really useful bit of experience and you'll be doing advocacy in front of judges. Over and above that, there are scholarships available. I know certainly Middle Temple um, have various scholarships, such as the Harold Fox Scholarship, where you go and do work experience in Canada. 
there are things like the Pegasus scheme. There might be slightly more unusual ways of doing work experience. So um, what work experience, increasing your experience on your CV. So essay competitions, maybe going and actually doing debating or mooting on a much bigger platform. Be imaginative. Try and make yourself some money. <laughs> so if you can get something like a paralegal or um, LPC law, that's great. But you just need to show that you're still working, that you're not just sitting around being annoyed that you haven't got pupillage. So if you go back now to give your younger self some advice when you're applying to the to pupillage and to jobs and things, what would kind of be the key bits of advice you'd give yourself? Apart from don't panic. <laughs> but actually, I do think that don't panic is probably the the salient point. As lawyers, we are trained, and this includes when you're at university and at the bar course, we're trained to look for the pitfalls in everything. And we are trained to be aware of the extreme consequences that come from, say, not filing your application on time. And I think it makes us hyper aware of risk. And it makes us very stressed. And you need to just kind of try and not focus on the negative. So when you get the bad feedback, or should I say, when you get your feedback, don't just look at the bad parts. When you're not getting pupillage that first year that you're applying, don't just think, well, that's it. I'm, you know, clearly, I'm never going to be a barrister. You need to try and go easy on yourself in reality. I think over and above that, the top five tips, which are ones I absolutely love. <laughs> Number one will always be listen to Lizzo. Lizzo is worth listening to no matter what happens. And I guarantee that putting Lizzo on when you're on your way to anywhere will make you at least 50% happier. I also think that actually Lizzo, on a practical sense, it's very confidence building. So if you've got to go in and do some advocacy, like I said, I've been told by plenty of barristers, the problem they have a lot of the time with interviewees is that they're a bit worried and they're a bit stressed and they're a bit low in confidence. Listen to Lizzo before you go and do your interview. It's going to just give you that bit of a bounce. I would say definitely watch Daniel Hallock, How to Rock Your Next Interview. It's only an hour long. And if you did nothing else to prepare for your interview, I think that would be the one thing. This one's quite an interesting one. One of the complaints that I have regularly heard from barristers when dealing with applications is we need more brevity. So you need to be unapologetic about how you answer questions. One of the problems that I certainly had with my earlier applications that when I read other people's applications and I changed it was the fact that I kind of like just fluffed around answers a bit. And we just haven't got time for that. If the word limit is 200, try and do it in 170. We don't need to hear a load of, I was part of a team and then the team, we all did this and it was nice. Nah, I just want, my name's Lydia, I did this, it was great, I won. But one of the ways of doing that is look at one of your application forms and write maybe just one answer, um, especially like a competency-based one. Then listen to episode three of The Guilty Feminist on apologising. This is a comedy podcast, but that particular episode is all about not couching your language in that kind of apologistic type way. So not going, oh, well, I was in a team and it was lovely and da da da. It's about just putting yourself front and centre. So write out your application answer, listen to the podcast, and then immediately reread your answer with a red pen in your hand. I think you will take out at least 20% of the language that you've used. And that's the version we want. We don't want meat, potato, veg. We want three strips of steak. 
So just get rid of all the fluff. Subscribe to Carla Lowenthal's podcast, This Lawyer Stress Solution. This is an amazing podcast that I would say has made me at least 50% less stressed since I started in um, practice. She's a life coach from New York who was a lawyer, now a full-time life coach. And she deals with all the common problems that we come up with, things like catastrophizing, overwhelm, procrastination, but she's really good. And she not only identifies it in a way that when you're listening to it, you think, oh, God, I thought I was the only person who spent all night worrying about did I hand in the application or not. In reality, we all do. But she not only tells you and assures you that it's normal to think in that way in our profession, but then tells you how to practically deal with it. She's brilliant at dealing with that. Um, you can find it on Spotify, you can find it on iTunes, The Lawyer Stress Solution, really worth a look. And yeah, finally, read the Bar Council Ethics uh, Common Dilemma Archive. Good um, for ethics preparation for your exam, but also it's a classic question that comes up, ethical dilemma. Chances are it's probably going to be something similar to um, a dilemma that's on there. Thank you for your time. It's been really helpful. I think everyone listening is will find the same as well. Thank you. Yeah, it's great. I'll be using all your tips to apply. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, certainly, it's... Um, I do these talks um, all over the place now because they are the talks that I wanted to hear when I was applying. I didn't want to hear from Bob, who's spent you know, 10 years debating at The Hague and then three years with a high court judge and then went to every single prestigious university under the sun. I wanted to know that someone from the same background as me could get to this position. And it is. It's completely possible. And it might take a bit of time and might be a few mistakes along the way, but... <laughs> Entirely possible. And I would also say definitely do um, consider Broadway House when you are applying to pupillage. We are an awesome set. I can verify it. It's great being here. (laughs) (laughs) And there's cake. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. There you have it. I told you it'd be a great episode. I want to say a big thank you again to Lydia, who was just great and so much fun to record with. If you want to keep up to date with what Little Law is doing, which I'm sure as a keen Little Lawyer you do, you can follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. We hope you've enjoyed the episode and we look forward to you tuning in again next time. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode 